uh, I think most people in evangelicalism, when they see a squirrel, thinks of Gene Clyde. It's really strange when you think about it. Decidedly Christian, distinctly biblical, and just a little bit nuts. This is Squirrel Chatter. And welcome to the Piney Woods, ladies and gentlemen. I am your squirrel, the host, coming to you from the ARN studios, high atop the tallest tree in the Piney Woods, and it is good to have you with us. It is Wednesday, the 25th day of January, 2023. Now, I do need to point out something. Friday's episode will be pre-recorded. I will go ahead and do uh, do our Federalist Friday in a pre-recorded version because I got drawn for jury duty yet again. I uh, the the population of our county is right around four thousand people, and so when you're in the jury pool, which I've been in the jury pool. And since, well, we've lived here for 24 years, and I have been in the jury pool probably six, seven times in those 24 years, and you're in the jury pool for a year. And in the, I've never gone a period when I was in the jury pool that I didn't get called for jury duty. I've sat on two juries. Um. Most of the time you get there for the selection process and you don't end up being sat. And uh, about half the time you get a phone call uh, that, that things have settled. There's been a plea deal or whatever and there's, the trial isn't going to happen so you don't have to go. Um, you don't even have to show up. But I've had to show up at the courthouse quite often. And like I said, I've sat on two juries. So Friday, I've got jury duty. And uh, so I'm going to pre-record Friday's Federalist Friday. But uh, Lord willing, we will be here live tomorrow. And we are here live today. We webcast live at 7.30 Mountain Time, Monday through Friday, on Twitter, Facebook, and Twitch. So you can watch the video there. And you can download the audio podcast just about wherever you find podcasts. And I would help, I would encourage you, please subscribe to the podcast. Um, the video isn't safe for you to listen to while you're driving. So I would encourage you to download the audio. And if you do subscribe to the podcast, go ahead and give us that five-star rating and, and drop us a review. I do read them. I appreciate them. And uh, they help the podcast get noticed. The, the, the tens of tens of listeners... Uh, ever-growing audience of tens and tens. Um, Squirrel Chatter is a proud member of the Christian Podcast Community. You can head on over to christianpodcastcommunity.com and check out all the great curated podcasts that are over there. And we are doing our uh, Bible bi- study Bible level Bible study. i got to get that phrase down. We're doing a study Bible level Bible study of Deuteronomy. Basically, what that means is I read the text and I comment on it um, in a general way. Um, not that it's I won't get specific, but it's it's I'm not going super deep. Um, 
Some parts we're going to do deeper than others. We're just walking our way through the uh, the scriptures. We're going to be start picking up in uh, Deuteronomy two twenty four today, which is where we dropped off yesterday. And the intent is to look at Deuteronomy twenty four two twenty four to three eleven. That's where I hope to get to today. This is the beginning of the conquest of the promised land, but it's the, the, the land that is east of the Jordan. Um, you know, many people think that the Jordan River, because they crossed the Jordan to begin the conquest under, under uh, Joshua, and of course Moses was not allowed to cross the Jordan. He was allowed to climb up the mountain and look across the Jordan but he wasn't allowed to cross the Jordan into the promised land. But in reality, Moses was in the promised land east of the Jordan. The, the God had given them, you know, God, you go back and you read the description of the territory that God gave to Abraham, and it's vast. And the nation of Israel never truly possessed all of it. Um, and we can talk about that later. I know there's some dispute about that. And, and uh, some of my cov covenantalist friends say, oh, no, the scripture says they possessed everything. Um, meaning that those uh, promises were fulfilled. But uh, we'll get, when we get to the end of Deuteronomy, when we get to the blessings and the cursings and the things that, that, Moses is telling the Israelites are going to happen in their future history. Folks, I, I hope to show you why I still expect an earthly kingdom of Christ and why I still expect a fulfillment of these prophecies because it's pretty clear. And that's just Deuteronomy. Um, we can look at other prophets, other other places in the, the Old Testament as well. Um, I think it's pretty clear. God made promises to a specific people, and he will keep them. Now, I think I mentioned before, I've got a, a little book over here on the shelf. Uh, there it is. I can see the spine. It's a little bitty thing, skinny little thing, written by uh, Pastor Steve Kraloff. And it is an exposition of Romans 9, 10, and 11. And the title of the book is God's Plans for Israel. Because Romans 9, 10, and 11 is answering an unasked question at the end of Romans 8. If you've ever read, you know, Romans, which I hope you have, <laughs> If you've ever read Romans, you get, you know, this great crescendo in chapter 8. But, you know, it starts with there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, and it ends with there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God. And then chapter 9 opens with this huge bummer of a very depressed Paul lamenting Israel's lack of salvation. The unanswered question that lies between chapter 8 and chapter 9, the question that Paul is answering in 9, 10, and 11, goes something like this. 
Okay, Paul, those, those promises to the church sound great. Those sound like really good promises. But what about all the promises God made to Israel? Are they going to be fulfilled? Why is Israel on the outs? And now the church, has, has the church replaced Israel? Have, have all those promises shifted from Israel to the church? Or as my covenantalist friends would say, were they intended for the church all along? And Paul answers that in 9, 10, 11 by basically saying that, you know, God's word has not failed. And it ends up by saying all Israel will be saved. He says, you know, not every physical descendant of Jacob is part of Israel, meaning believing Israel. And he goes through and quotes from Old Testament prophets showing that, that the inclusion of Gentiles and, and the, the present church age, while a mystery, Ephesians 2 and 3, while not fully revealed in the Old Testament, was definitely hinted at. And God made predictions of Israel's falling away and then being regathered in the end. And Paul goes through all of that in 9, 10, and 11. So just throwing that out there, that's, that's bonus material. Um, if you get that Steve Kraloff, God's Plans for Israel, great, great little book. Like I said, it's a little skinny thing. But it's just an exposition of Romans 9, 10, and 11 where he really, really lays it out. And uh, I think it's out in a new edition. Um, I may need to pick that up because it has been an invaluable resource. It was When I preached through Romans, um, it was just super helpful in coming to an understanding of what was going on in 9, 10, and 11. Um, and I'm not at all rejecting the, uh, the Reformed Calvinist understanding of the display of the sovereignty of God and salvation that also occurs in those verses. Um, scripture can teach a multitude of things in a small place if you read it correctly using the historical grammatical hermeneutic. And the historical grammatical hermeneutic is simply a fancy way of saying the Bible means what it says. And so when you take your time, read carefully, and determine what it says, you can trust that's what it means. Um, I think I, I wrote an article on the doctrine of Scripture once on my blog, back when blogging was a thing. And I said in that article that God because he intended his scriptures to be understood, the normal rules of language apply to the reading of the scriptures. There's not hidden, secret, deeper meanings in the scriptures. Now, I'm not saying you can't go deep in the scriptures and reach fuller understanding, but what I am saying is the true meaning of the scriptures is what the scriptures say. And that's something that, that we really need to focus on. And it's, you know, when, when you start looking at, at uh, allegorism, where you can make the scriptures say whatever you want, because all you have to do is, is read a portion of scripture and make each element of it stand for something else. And then you can teach anything from the scriptures. Now, the meaning of the scriptures is what the scriptures say. 
And that is something that, that it needs to be focused on by all of us in our reading of the Scripture. So as we, we're going to be in Deuteronomy 2.24 today, but let's begin with our prayer of confession from the 1552 Book of Common Prayer. Almighty and most merciful Father, we have erred and strayed from thy ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. We have offended against thy holy laws. We have left undone those things which we ought to have done, and we have done those things which we ought not to have done, and there is no health in us. But thou, O Lord, have mercy upon us, miserable offenders. Spare thou them, O God, which confess their faults. Restore thou them that are penitent, according to thy promises declared unto mankind in Christ Jesus our Lord. And grant, O most merciful Father, for his sake, that we may hereafter live a godly, righteous, and sober life, to the glory of thy holy name. Amen. And now our prayer for the study of the word. Blessed Lord, who hast caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant that we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which thou hast given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 24. Quick review, we have uh, Israel has completed the wandering in the wilderness. The generation that refused to enter into the promised land has died off as God had um, ordained. And the generation following has now come to enter into the promised land. And the conquest is now beginning. Now remember, they have passed through uh, areas and alongside territories that God said, you don't take any of this land, I've given it to the sons of Lot. And so they, they were not allowed to take that land. But then when they got to the land of the Amorites and the land of Bashan, God, now remember, we're east of the Jordan. God says to them, all right, now you're going to start taking land. This is land that I'm giving to you. Um, he told Abraham that he would give him all the lands of his sojourning, all the lands that, that Abraham passed through in his, his wandering nomadic lifestyle. Kind of everywhere his foot trod, I think is the, the way it's said in Genesis. So he was given this huge parcel of land. And some of that is east of the Jordan. So we're seeing that now, that this land is being given by God to Israel. Let's start reading in verse 24. Arise, set out. And pass through the valley of Arnon. Look, I have given Sihon the Amorite, king of Heshbon, and his land into your hand. Begin to take possession and provoke him to battle. He's like that. Provoke him to battle. Basically, God's telling him, go pick a fight. Um, go in, start taking the land, and when he comes out to, to resist you, you trouncing. Um, it, it just amuses me. 
provoke him to battle. <laughs> Verse 25, this day I will begin to put the dread and fear of you upon the peoples everywhere under the heavens who, when they hear the report of you, will tremble and be in anguish because of you. Here we are seeing one of the means by which God would accomplish Israel's conquest of Canaan. The Canaanites were being defeated in their minds and hearts before they ever faced Israel in battle. God filled them with fear. Having an enemy that is afraid is a huge part of the battle. And it's like that's basically what bullies um, rely on that the people that they're picking on will be too frightened to resist. Um, one thing Dad always told me to stand up to a bully. They don't want to fight. Um, and if you give them a fight, yeah, even if you lose, they're going to leave you alone because they're not looking for a fight. They're looking for their jollies in pushing you around. Um, and so... You know, that's why you resist a bully. But he's, the bullies rely on fear. You're too scared to fight back. Well, in a lot of ways, the, the, that was God's plan for the conquest. That the Canaanites would be too scared to fight back. And when they did fight, the fear that they had for Israel would adversely affect their skills in battle. And so he says, as you're going into this area, I'm going to begin to make the people fear you. Um, and interesting, I think we mentioned this when we talked about the, the generation that refused to enter the land. When Joshua leads Israel into the, across the Jordan and they take Jericho, they find out from the people in Jericho that the people in Jericho had been terrified that Israel was coming 40 years before. So the, the, God had done the same thing prior to the refused conquest 40 years prior. So now that generation's died off and God is doing the same thing here. He's filling the people of the promised land with fear of the coming Israelites. So they would hear the report of you, they will tremble, and they will be in anguish because of you. This isn't just concern. This is a self-defeating terror. And it comes from God. Because God controls the hearts of men. So this is one of the means by which God was going to accomplish this. Verse 26. So I, this is Moses again. So I sent messengers from the wilderness of Kedemoth to Sihon, king of Heshbon, with words of peace, saying, let me pass through your land. 
I will go only on the highway. I will not turn aside to the right or to the left. You will sell me food for money so that I may eat, and give me water for money so that I may drink. Only let me pass through on foot, just as the sons of Esau who live in Seir and the Moabites who live in Ar did for me, until I cross over the Jordan into the land which Yahweh our God is giving to us. So this is the same deal that they offered to the Edomites and the Moabites. Now, we know that the Edomites refused them passage, and they had to travel along the outside of the, of the land of Edom. Um, and and what, we, what, what had happened there was God said, you can't take their land. Here, they're making the same deal. Let us pass through. But here, when the Heshbon people, Heshbonites, or the Ammonites, or Amorites, there's a lot of ites. Yeah, the Amorites, when the, the Amorites resist them, they're allowed to fight back because God is giving them this land. So they come in, hey, we're just passing through. We'll pay for any food, we'll pay for any water, and and just let us pass through. Now, was Moses being disingenuous when he sent this letter? No, I don't think so. This was a genuine offer. If you let us pass through, we'll just pass through peacefully. Now, Moses made that offer knowing that it would not be accepted. So why make the offer? Um, I think it's a case of, this is again a, a situation where when they are defeated, when Israel takes the land, it can be shown that they had offered peace and it was refused. Um, one of the things that, that you know, in a lot of ways, it's like the offer of the gospel to everyone. The gospel is offered to everyone. Only those chosen by God accept the offer of the gospel. But the gospel is offered to everyone. And it is a genuine offer. But it's an offer that God knows will not be accepted. And that doesn't mean that the offer isn't genuine. Now, in a much less impactful and less significant way, it's like me offering a handful of fiery Cheetos to my wife. Mrs. Squirrel does not like spicy food. I, on the other hand the spicier the better. So for me to offer her, you know, flaming Cheetos or, or flaming Fritos or some spicy chip or, or ghost pepper salsa or whatever, you know, I'm putting on my, my food, I know she's not going to accept it. But if she said yes, I'd let her have some. It's a genuine offer. So... That's just an example. 
Verse 30, But Sihon king of Heshbon was not willing for us to pass through his land. For, listen to this, Yahweh your God stiffened his spirit and made his heart obstinate in order to give him over into your hand as he is today. This is another instance where God is hardening the heart of a king so as to destroy him, so as to bring judgment upon him. Uh, we saw the same thing with Pharaoh in Egypt. God hardened his heart. Now it also says Pharaoh hardened his heart, and elsewhere God hardened his heart. And and that's that's the same thing here. Trust me, Sihon was not inclined to be peaceful with the Israelites, and then God made him turn him down. God confirmed him in his own desires. And and so in order to give them over into Israel. So this is this is part of the conquest. You know, I'm going to make an offer of peace. They're going to turn it down and then you wipe them out. That's God's plan. As we begin the conquest here, and so in verse 31, and Yahweh said to me, God talking to Moses, See, I have begun to give Sihon and his land over to you. Begin to possess so that you may fully possess his land. So God has decided to bring judgment on Sihon. Earlier, he had said, Don't fight with Edom and Moab. Here he's saying, go ahead and fight with Sihon. I'm giving you his land. So, again, we see the sovereignty of God. And one of the things we need to understand, God brings judgment through ordinary means. Yes, God brings judgment supernaturally. We have seen, you know, the flood during Noah's age, we've seen the fire from heaven raining down on Sodom and Gomorrah. But normally, God brings his judgment providentially. And nations are judged by God in history through the actions of other nations. Here, as we see the conquest beginning... God is judging the Canaanites through the actions of Israel. The conquest is, yes, fulfilling God's promises to Abraham, beginning to fulfill, fulfilling part of it. But at the same time, the conquest is fulfilling God's judgment against the Canaanites. God is using Israel to judge Canaan. Later in Israel's history, God is going to use the Assyrians and the Babylonians to judge Israel. The, 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 the later conquest, God used the Philistines. Go Read through the book of Judges. God used the Philistines to bring judgment on Israel for their disobedience. 
This is God's pattern. And I think we can even see it. It, it requires special revelation to see specifics for the most part. Um, when we see somebody suffering, we can't say he's suffering because of this sin or that sin. But at the same time, we can say generally that God uses policemen to bring judgment upon criminals. That's Romans 13, right? God uses um, the military might of nations to bring judgment upon other nations. Um, I think we can say unequivocally, and I'm, I'm not saying this because I've received some sort of prophetic insight, I haven't, but I think we can say with a fair bit of certainty that God used the military might of the allies to bring judgment upon wicked Nazi Germany. But at the same time, God used the military might of wicked Soviet forces to bring judgment on wicked Nazi Germany. Because, and God used the, the wicked forces of Assyria to bring judgment on the northern kingdom of Israel during the divided kingdom and the Assyrian captivity of the northern, northern kingdom. And, you know, Babylon was not the most righteous of nations when God used Babylon to bring judgment upon Judah. So God can use unrighteous means to deliver his righteous judgment, and he does all the time. And like I said, we can't, you know, we can't point to a lot of specific instances in history and say, okay, that's God's judgment. Apart from scripture, we need God's revelation to say why he's sending judgment and that he's sending judgment. So, you know, when a hurricane hits a city and, and, and there's devastation or a tornado rips through a town in Kansas and there's huge losses of life, apart from special revelation, we can't say this is why God brought this wrath upon this, this land. And we see, sadly, people trying to do this. I, I just in recent years, and recent years for somebody my age is the last 25 years, um, I remember there was a bad earthquake in Haiti, and I think that was in the 90s, if I remember right. I think it was in the 90s, but it was a bad earthquake because I think I think the Clinton Clinton sent in American forces to to help with recovery efforts and to keep order and to feed people and uh, to unfortunately prop up a hugely corrupt government. the The island of I think it's Hispanol Hispanolia is an interesting island. Because one half of it is Haiti, which is vastly corrupt and just buried in poverty. Um, indeed, buried in poverty because of the corruption of the, 
the government for the most part. Then the other half of the island is the Dominican Republic. And the Dominican Republic is, at least in comparison with Haiti, very uh, prosperous because of a, a completely different form of government and, and a lot less corruption. Um, and, and so, you know, both, of, both island nations are poor compared to Western Europe or the United States or Australia or wherever. But the Dominican Republic is much better off than Haiti, even though they share an island because of the, the forms of government. But the Haitian, Haiti had been hit by a bad earthquake and it had wiped out you know, huge sections of the capital city of Port-au-Prince and brought huge amounts of devastation to the people of Haiti. And a certain televangelist, Pat Robertson, went on his 700 Club show and told us why God had judged Haiti. And the reason, according to Robertson, that God had judged Haiti was back during colonial times when the slaves, black African slaves on Haiti, had overthrown the French colonial government. They had made demonic and satanic pacts for supernatural aid in overthrowing the French. And that was why God had sent this earthquake. Well, here's the problem. There's no evidence of any kind of demonic pact to overthrow the French made by the Haitians. Now, grant, there is quite a bit of Haitian voodoo, which is a, a blend of African tribal religions with Roman Catholicism. Um, and we do still see that, you know. And, and so they are a pagan people. But to say that's why God sent this earthquake goes way beyond what we know. We can't know that. You know, we can't know God's reasoning. These are these are God's God's mysterious ways. He is vastly more knowledgeable and vastly more wise and vastly more both long-suffering and far-looking than we are. Um, God may do something today that will not quote unquote bear fruit for centuries. Um, I mean, look at you know the 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 calling of of this pagan idolater Abram out of the city of Ur of the Chaldees. That was so that almost 2,000 years later, the, the Messiah would be born. And this nation of Israel would be huge at that time. 
So, so God, God can take a long view, and he, can, he knows that if he nudges something here way down the road, it's going to have a great effect. But he can understand that. We can't. And so who knows what the reasons for the Haitian earthquake were. Pat Robertson doesn't. We can't, apart from God telling us what he's doing, we can't know. Um, uh, the, other, the other example that came to mind was uh, um, Hurricane Katrina. I remember many evangelicals talking about Hurricane Katrina was God's judgment upon the immoral party town of New Orleans. Because of all the wickedness that goes on in New Orleans, every Mardi Gras and the French Quarter and, and, and all this, that, and the other thing, this was God's judgment on this wicked city. And I looked at them, and I looked at New Orleans, and I looked at Las Vegas, and I just shrugged my shoulders. You know, you can't, you can't say why God allowed Hurricane Katrina to hit New Orleans. Um, he did. He's sovereign. I have no doubt that he had a purpose or purposes in allowing that and that those purposes are good. But I can't say why. Because he hasn't told me. And why he struck New Orleans and not Las Vegas yeah, of course. I mean, a hurricane hitting Las Vegas, that would get people's attention. Because it's so far inland out in the desert. It would take, <laughs> it would be a real serious earthquake that would probably, or probably a, a hurricane. It would, uh, so if it came up through the Gulf, it would destroy Texas and Arizona. <laughs> and, you know, that would be, uh, that would be New Mexico. That'd all be gone uh, if a hurricane powerful enough to destroy Las Vegas came in from the Gulf of Mexico. And if a typhoon came in from the Pacific Ocean, it would, you know, wipe out California. Now, I'm not saying those are bad things, but, <laughs> um, you know, the, that would get people's attention. You know, the, the fact is New Orleans sits in a hurricane-prone region, you know, and, and so a hurricane hit New Orleans. Now, like I said, God had a purpose in it. God has a purpose in everything because he is absolutely sovereign. And as R.C. Sproul was fond of saying, there's not a rogue molecule in the universe. There's not a molecule. There's not a subatomic particle that is not exactly where God determined it would be at exactly this time. So he is that sovereign over everything. So anytime there's a tornado or a hurricane or good weather, you know, don't just blame him for the disasters. Anytime, you know, any weather, any natural disaster, earthquakes, you know, but we can't know why. And what we think might be the reason may not be the reason. So be careful about trying to ascribe motives to acts of God. Now, God has reasons, but unless he tells us, we can't know what those reasons are.
we are told that God is judging the Canaanites in the conquest. Verse 32. Then Sihon, with all his people, came out to meet us in battle at Jehaz. But Yahweh our God gave him over to us, and we struck him down with his sons and all his people. So we captured all his cities at that time and devoted to destruction the men, women, and little ones of every city. We left no survivor remaining. God ordered the destruction of Sihon and his people. Devoted to destruction. No survivors. This was to remove the pagan influence of the Canaanites. We'll see that here in a little bit in chapter 3. They couldn't lead the Israelites into false worship if they weren't around. You know, bad, bad friends corrupt good morals. If you don't have any bad friends, you don't have that outside force assisting in your corruption. And then militarily, knowing that if you fight Israel and lose, you're going to die because they're killing everybody they defeat, would cause some people to flee instead of fighting, which would make the conquest easier. So both of these were probably probably reasons. I mean, I, I, I think back to the conquest of Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great had a policy, if you will, that he would come upon a city with his army as he was moving, as he was conquering. He would come upon a city and he would demand the city's surrender. If the city surrendered, then they became citizens of his empire. He added their, their city and territory to his empire, and he moved on to the next city. If the city resisted, his policy was to wipe them out. Now, why was that his policy? His policy was that he let all this be known. So when you saw Alexander's army coming over the hill, heading for town, you knew you had two options. You could surrender and be a part of Alexander's empire, accept his rule and keep living, or you could fight and guarantee your absolute destruction. It was a good policy. It probably ended up saving many lives. Now, the Israelites were ordered by God not to accept the surrender of the Canaanites. But having a policy of total destruction and knowing you can't surrender might have caused people to flee. Remember, they're already scared of the Israelites. God has filled them with the fear of the Israelites, so they're not thinking they're going to win. You know, if you thought you could win, sure. But you don't think you can win, and you know you're going to be utterly destroyed, you might just run away. And so the, you can see there's actually wisdom in this. 
And we know that this is God's judgment. And I mentioned this earlier, but I want to point out Genesis 15, 16. This is during one of, this is the, the first reiteration of the Abrahamic covenant, which was first given in, in Genesis 12. In Genesis 15, God is reiterating his covenant and giving more details in his promises that he's making to Abraham. And he's just told Abraham that his children were going to spend 400 years enslaved in Egypt, which happened. <laughs> and he says that in the fourth generation, they will return here. And, and Abraham was in Canaan, somewhere in the promised land. He said in the fourth generation, they're going to return here. And then God says this really interesting thing. He says, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. God was going to devote the Amorite, and Amorite is, is it's a blanket term here for the Canaanites. The, the, these, these are often used interchangeably. The, the Amorite, the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. So what is he saying? He says, I'm going to bring this level of judgment upon the Amorites, but their iniquity hasn't reached that level yet. So I'm going to wait some four or 500 years, because you know, he's talking to Abraham and it isn't until Jacob is an old man that they even go into Israel or into Egypt. He says, well, I'm going to wait, you know, four or 500 years before I bring the level of judgment that I have determined upon this land because their iniquity hasn't reached that level yet, but it will by the time I bring the conquest. So we can see that this is, the conquest is a judgment from God upon the Amorite, the Canaanite, the people of the promised land, and his judgment is just and right. And it's commiserate with the level of the iniquity of the people in the land. So verse 35. We took only the animals as our plunder and the spoil of the cities which we had captured. For Aror, which is on the edge of the valley of Arnon, and from the city which is in the valley, even to Gilead, there was not a town that was too high for us. Yahweh our God gave all over to us. So the military success is there. They were able to conquer all of these towns because God was with them. And he said, you know, we devoted everything to destruction. We killed all the men, women, and children. All we kept were the animals and the spoil, the material wealth of the people. But the people were killed. And it says all of them. Verse 37, Only you did not go near to the land of the sons of Ammon, all along the river Jabak and the cities of the hill country, and wherever Yahweh our God had commanded us. So he said, you're, you're seeing that they, they obeyed. They only conquered the people God told them to conquer. They did not 
go into the land of Ammon, the sons of Ammon, the Ammonites, which were descendants of Lot. Remember the, the Ben-Ami, the son of Lot and his youngest daughter, was the, the, uh, the Ammonites. And God had said, I gave them this land. You're not to take any of it. We looked at that yesterday. So they didn't. They were obedient. Um, we can go back up to 219 and we can see that where, where Moses says, you will, not, you will come opposite the sons of Ammon. Do not harass them nor provoke them, for I will not give you any of the land of the sons of Ammon as a possession because I have given it to the sons of Lot as a possession. That's not yours. This is yours. And they were obedient. They took the land that they had been given. All right. Quickly through these next 11 verses, because a lot of what I've already said would apply here as well. Then we turned and went up the road to Bashan, and Og, king of Bashan, with all his people, came out to meet us in battle at Edri. But Yahweh said to me, Do not fear him, for I have given him and all his people and his land over into your hand, and you shall do to him just as you did to Sihon, king of the Amorites, who lived at Heshbon. Now Og, king of Bashan, we, we learn, ruled over 60 cities in the area of Bashan, which is a fertile region east of the Sea of Galilee. So we see that they're, they're moving all up the eastern side of the Jordan and the Sea of Galilee and taking that, that land, that, that territory. So he was a powerful king with a powerful army. And they went in and trounced him because God gave them the victory. Now, Bashan is still farmland today. And in ancient times, it was known for its cattle. Um, psalm 22, that, that famous psalm about the crucifixion, that prophetic psalm about Jesus' crucifixion. Uh, in Psalm 22... In verse 12, it refers to strong bulls of Bashan. So this was cattle country, the, the Texas of the Middle East. <laughs> so this was, you know, fertile land that God was giving them from Og, king of Bashan. God's giving this land to Israel just as he gave them the land of Sihon, king of the Amorites. Now, we see all of this in Numbers 21, 21 through 35. And I'm just going to read through this passage without any comment. Then Israel sent messengers to Sihon, king of the Amorites, saying, Let me pass through your land. We will not turn off into the field or vineyard. We will not drink water from wells. We will go by the king's highway until we have passed through your border. But Sihon would not allow Israel to pass through his border, so Sihon gathered all his people and went out to meet Israel in the wilderness and came to Jehaz and fought against Israel. Then Israel struck him with the edge of the sword and took possession of his land from the Arnon to the Jabbok as far as the sons of Ammon. So there we see it. They stopped at the border of the sons of Ammon, which was the Jazer River. And Israel took all these cities and Israel lived in all the cities of the Amorites in Heshbon and in all her towns, for Heshbon was the city of Sihon, king of the Amorites. Now it was he who had fought against the former king of Moab and had taken all of his land out of his hand as far as the Arnon. 
Therefore, those who use Proverbs say, Come to Heshbon, let it be built. So let the city of Sihon be established. For a fire went forth from Heshbon, and a flame from the town of Sihon. It devoured Ar of Moab, the dominant heights of the Arnon. Woe to you, Moab! You perish, O people of Chemosh. He has given his sons as fugitives and his daughters into captivity to an Amorite king, Sihon. But we have cast them down. Heshbon perishes as far as Dibon, and we have made desolate even to Napha, which reaches to Mediba. Thus Israel lived in the land of the Amorites, and Moses sent to spy out Jazer, and they captured its town and dispossessed the Amorites who were there. Then they turned and went up by the way of Bashan, and Og the king of Bashan went out to meet them, he and all his people, for battle at Edri. But Yahweh said to Moses, Do not fear him, for I have given him into your hand and all his people and his land, and you shall do to him as you did to Sihon, king of the Amorites, who lived at Heshbon. So they struck him down, and his sons, and all his people, until there was no survivor remaining, and they possessed his land. Back to Deuteronomy 3, verse 3. So Yahweh our God also gave Og, king of Bashan, with all his people over into our hand. And we struck them until there was no survivor remaining. And we captured all his cities at that time. There was not a town which we did not take from them, sixty cities, all the region of Argob, the kingdom of Og in Bashan. All these were cities fortified with high walls, gates, and bars, besides a great many unwalled towns. And we devoted them to destruction, as we did to Sihon king of Heshbon, devoting to destruction the men, women, and little ones of every city. But all the animals and the spoil of the cities we took as our plunder. Note quickly, they did not destroy the cities either, because the cities themselves were spoil. Um, they were going to inhabit these cities. Um, in the prophetic passages about the conquest, they're being told, you're going to live in towns you didn't build. You're going to eat fruit from vineyards you didn't plant. You're going to harvest grain from fields you didn't till. This is all part of God's gift to Israel. So these cities become dwelling places for the Israelites. And again, there's no survivors. Um, Deuteronomy 20.16, which of course we will get to later, says this. Or 20.16-18. Only in the cities of these people that Yahweh your God is giving you as an inheritance, you shall not leave alive anything that breathes, but you shall devote them to destruction. The Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, and the Perizzite the Hivite and the Jebusite, as Yahweh your God has commanded you. So this is God's command to kill them all. Then verse 18 tells us why. So that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominations, which they have done for their gods, so that you would sin against Yahweh your God. And we can hear the cry. But the children, it says they killed the little ones. Yes, they did. Folks, this is something that there, there are 
two beliefs that have permeated Western culture that are not biblical. The first one is that everybody's basically good. We're not. We're evil at heart. Read Romans 1. Read Romans 2. Read Romans 3. Uh, there's none righteous, no, not one. None that seeks after God, etc., etc. People are not good at heart. They're wicked and evil, and that's why you lock your doors at night. The second thing is children are innocent. They are not. Just as one example, let me read to you the third verse of the 58th Psalm. The wicked are estranged from the womb. Now, the, the, the wicked, that's wicked people, are estranged from God. They're set apart from God from the womb. The verse continues. These who speak falsehood wander in error from birth. So, folks, we're born sinners. And that's just a fact. And so having God's wrath fall upon sinners isn't surprising. And think about this. Okay, God ordered the death of these children in the military conquest of the land. God's other acts of judgment have also resulted in the deaths of children. How many children drown in the flood? Think about that. It's... There were, I, I believe, millions, if not billions of people alive on the earth at the time of the flood of Noah. Eight people got saved. How many children drowned? I have no idea. Millions. I mean, just think about it. There were children in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah when God destroyed them. Those children died. They died in the fires just like their parents did. And so here, God ordered the destruction of children in the conquest of Canaan. That bugs a lot of people. But here's the thing. He is God. We often talk about, you know, uh, I, I, I've thought about... Uh, there's a, there's a phrase, um, you don't get to play God. And we use that phrase to point to a human who is making decisions that people shouldn't make. Who lives and who dies, etc. kind of decisions. You don't get to play God, we say. But when God plays God, we resent it and get mad at him. When we say you don't get to play God, we're acknowledging that God has the right to do certain things that you and I don't have the right to do. But when God does those certain things, we resent him for doing it, and we pronounce him to be evil. The fact that God would order the death of all these children's just make him evil. That's what people say. But the fact of the matter is, he's God. What, what often just amuses me 
in a profoundly sad way is the fact that most of the people who get mad at God for ordering the death of children are vehemently pro-abortion. If you got no problem killing children, why should God? But the fact of the matter is that God's killing of children is just. The killing of children in abortion mills is wicked and evil. All right, let's read these last verses of the conquest, and then we will wrap up the day. So verses 8 through 11. Thus we took the land at that time from the hand of the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, from the valley of Arnon to Mount Hermon, Sidonians call Hermon Syrian, and the Amorites call it Sinir. Excuse me. All the cities of the plateau, and all Gilead, and all Bashan, as far as Selica and Edri, cities of the kingdom of Og and Bashan. For only Og, king of Bashan, remained of the remnant of the Rephaim. Behold, his bedstead was a bed of iron, was an iron bedstead. It is at Reba of the sons of Ammon. Its length was nine cubits, and its width four cubits by ordinary cubit. Ordinary cubit is 18 inches, about a foot and a half. So nine cubits would be 14 feet. His bed was 14 feet long. We talked a little bit about giants yesterday. He was one. And it says here he was the, the, all that remained of the remnant of the Rephaim. And uh, talked about the size of his bed. So the conquest has now begun. The conquest has begun east of the Jordan, taking the land of Og and Sihon and possessing these cities and devoting to destruction all of the people who lived there as an act of God's judgment, ordered by God, carried out in obedience by the sons of Israel. And uh, so that's where we are, and that's where we're going to leave off until next Tuesday when we resume looking through our, uh, our walk through Deuteronomy. Hope this has been beneficial to you. Um, I'm enjoying it. I hope you are. But uh, just to remind you, tomorrow is Theology Thursday. We're going to be in the uh, 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith again. And then Friday's Federalist Friday. There will be one. It's going to be pre-recorded because I've got jury duty. So that's what's coming up this week. Have a great Wednesday. Remember to do the things you ought to do. Don't do the things you ought not do. And whatever you do, do it for the glory of the Lord. See you again here tomorrow. Take care. God bless. Squirrel Chatter is recorded in front of a live studio hamster.